chapter 13 and we're going through verses uh, 1 to 19. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what, is to, what to say. Just say what is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. All right. Um, we're continuing our journey <coughs> through the Gospel of Mark today. <coughs> and remember, we're in the final week of Jesus' life on earth leading up to his crucifixion now if i knew that i only had a week to live or if you knew that you only had a week to live how would you spend it would you would you do it spend it doing frivolous things I, i'm guessing not you would you would spend it on the things that matter to you the most and i think um that's what jesus is doing here it's interesting i think that there's no record of jesus healing anyone in this week before his crucifixion he's teaching he's he's preaching he's rebuking he's he's emphasizing the message and and what's what's going to come now i'm not saying healing um isn't important it, it is if um, as anyone who has been physically healed by the lord knows it, it's very important but i think 
it's more important to understand God's word and to respond to the gospel of God's grace as it is revealed in Jesus than to be physically healed because one has eternal implications and, and one has temporal implications, doesn't it? And even though <clears throat> in a lot of cases physical healing can lead to repentance and faith in Jesus, and I, I was um, told yesterday of a, someone that, that was healed, uh, someone that didn't know the Lord, um, was prayed by um, one of my mates and, and he was physically healed uh, and then he went on to um, attend church. Uh, it doesn't always happen like that. If you remember the story of the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus, only one came back to thank him. So it does, it's not always the case that physical healing leads to uh, repentance and faith in Jesus. And in uh, chapters 12 and 13 of Mark's gospel, Jesus is spending an increasing amount of time focused on life after death. Uh, remember, it began with the question of marriage at the resurrection that Mickey uh, took us through. And then last week, um, the, the passage that Sarah covered, um, we read that the teachers of the law who oppress widows will be punished most severely. <clears throat> so that's a reference to the justice of God that, that will be administered, that will be applied at the general resurrection. And this, um, the, the passage of this chapter that we've, that we've just read, interestingly, is uh, one of the most debated passages in the whole of the Bible. There's a lot of um, debate about what it actually means, what it refers to. And if you are confused and unsettled and uncertain of what it means, you're not alone. Um, the debate has been raging for the last 2,000 years. And there's so much here in this chapter that um, we're going to spend two sermons on it. Um, today uh, we'll be focused mainly on the first couple of verses actually. And in um, a couple of weeks' time, <coughs> remember next Sunday as Kessie's coming to lunch, um, we'll devote... Uh, the rest are delving into um, the remaining uh, chapter. And today we're going to pull out three points that I, I think are relevant to us in our lives today. Firstly, we all want to build something in our lives. The desire becomes greater as we get older. Secondly, we want to do this because we want our lives to have meaning. And thirdly, our lives can have no greater meaning in this life or the life to come than by being part of God's living temple where he dwells, which is Christ. So let's, uh, let's tackle the first uh, couple of verses. And there's, uh, there's so much in here um, that this is what I'll be uh, mainly spending my time on today. Chapter 13, uh, if you want to uh, read along with it, begins with the disciples expressing their awe at the magnificence of the temple. And it says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. <clears throat> so they were looking at the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, I didn't realize this, but the uh, temple in Jerusalem that the disciples were speaking of, were in awe of, was not exactly the same one that was built by Nehemiah. I struggle to say it. Nehemiah, and it's not the shortest man in the Bible, it's Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, it's the, there's that joke, yeah. Who's the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah. But I, I always say Nehemiah, but it's Nehemiah, I think. So, anyway, Nehemiah. So King Herod the Great had embarked on this massive 
building renovation and expansion of the temple. And under Herod's direction, the Temple Mount area was expanded greatly, uh, creating an enormous platform. And, and the temple uh, area was actually expanded from 17 acres to 36 acres. 36 acres. I mean, that, that's how big that area is. 30, I don't know if you can see that. 36 acres. And those little dots in the middle there, they're people. So I think those walls must be, I don't know, 10 stories high or something? I don't know, yeah, sorry, Letitia, yeah. But it's a, it's a vast area. And I always wondered, why, why did the Romans take so long to, to, you know, why did it take so long to defeat the, the Jews when they attacked Jerusalem? And now I can see why. I mean, you imagine they built a ramp uh, up, to the, up to the temple when they destroyed it, when they entered it. I mean, how long, look at, that's massive, absolutely colossal. So that's what Herod did. He, he, uh, he added new courtyards, porticos, and other architectural features, uh, such as the notable Herodian gates. And uh, th he made those enormous retaining walls, absolutely huge. And Josephus says that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on it, it was blinding. You couldn't look at it. And where there wasn't gold, there were blocks of marble of, of such pure white that strangers to the city thought that there was snow on the temple. It was incredible. He had 10,000 skilled workmen working on it. And the actual temple itself was completed in a year and a half, but the rest took 10 years, and, um, and work was still being carried out on the retaining walls 20 years after his death. So it's absolutely colossal. And you can imagine, if you were to pay 10,000 people for a year and a half today, you can imagine, even on minimum wage, no. um, you know, it would, it's a lot of money. And King Herod was known for his colossal building projects, such as the Fortress of Masada, which I hope to visit one day. Some of you, has anyone gone to Masada? Oh, really? Wow, Rachel. Oh, and you have two, right? And Mickey. Wow. That must have been something very special. Um, but the, this, the temple renovation, was his masterpiece. And there's a certain admiration we have for people who undertake and complete uh, such amazing projects, isn't there? I mean, in, in our day, I've, I've, I have a lot of admiration for Peter Jackson, who, um, who really um, overcame almost impossible odds to make the Lord of the Rings uh, movies here in New Zealand. And then there's my old mate Elon Musk, who um, nearly went bankrupt multiple times before Tesla became the success it is now. So we have this, this uh, admiration for people who uh, take on and complete massive projects. And this desire to be responsible for something significant that will outlast us is a very powerful driver in humanity. And I guess for a lot of us, our children are kind of that thing, that they're our gift to the future. They're, that's why we sink so so much time and effort and love and care and attention into them. Um, and it's a noble and good desire, isn't it? We, we want to contribute to, we want to make, there's that often that phrase where people say, I want to leave the world in a better place than, than when, what it was when I came. And so that's, that's what we want to do. So this is our first point. We all want, want to build something with our lives that will outlast us. But some of you might be thinking, hold on, isn't this the same 
king Herod that slaughtered all the baby boys when Jesus was born? And yes, it's that guy. And some of you are like, really? Isn't that like Genghis Khan building the Sistine Chapel? And uh, this might be a bit unkind for King Herod, but um, it's close. He wasn't a very nice guy. He did a lot of awful things, including wiping out uh, many members of his own family, and he, he actually killed one of his wives. And he was actually an Edomite. He wasn't even a Jew. So if he was such an evil man and not even a Jew, why did he want to renovate the temple of Yahweh? The historian Josephus wrote that King Herod said this, But as to that undertaking which I have a mind to set about at present, and which will be a work of the greatest piety and excellence that can possibly be undertaken by us, I will now declare it to you. Our fathers indeed, when they returned from Babylon, built this temple to God Almighty, yet, it do, yet does it want 60 cubits of its largeness and altitude. For so much did that first temple which Solomon built exceed this temple. So it sounds good, doesn't it? For, you know, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't seem to match what we, what we know of this guy um, with what he said there. So piety is, uh, of course, religious devotion and reverence. So it would, on the surface at least, look like Herod wanted to carry out this massive renovation of God's temple as an act of worship to God and to bring it closer to the glory of the first temple that Solomon built. What a guy. But hold on. We know that there can be a significant difference between what we think we believe and what we actually believe. Why we think we're doing something and the true reason why we're doing something. And we can really only figure this out when we carefully um, study what we spend our time on or by asking other people who know us well what they see in us because it's very easy to see someone else's true motives, isn't it? You get this feeling that, uh, I don't know, something not adding up here. And most importantly, by asking God to show what he sees in us. <coughs> so it's interesting to, to read what Josephus himself, the historian, had to say about why King Herod renovated the temple. And this is what he said. And now Herod, in the 18th year of his reign, and after the acts already mentioned, undertook a very great work, that is to build of himself the temple of God and make it larger in compass, and to raise it to a most magnificent altitude, as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions, as it really was, to bring it to perfection, that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial of him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So if we distill down his motives, I think it's pretty safe to conclude that he carried out this renovation more to glorify himself than for God. Yeah, he wanted to be remembered, that's right. And, and he is remembered, possibly for some wrong things as well. <laughs> And this is what we do as humans, isn't it? We want to build something that we will be remembered for, a legacy that proves that our lives meant something, that we spend our time and our resources well. And yet our motives can be mixed. The best part of us wants to build something that points others to something greater than ourselves, an ideal or to God. And yet at the same time, we want some credit for what we built, which undermines the purity of our motives. And I can see this in myself. You know, God called Sarah and I to ministry in his church here at Abide. 
and part of the Church of Confessing Anglicans. And the best part of me wants to be used by God to build his church, to extend his kingdom. But I'm conscious of a part of myself that wants to build something to prove that I did well, that I succeeded in something, that I used my time and resources efficiently. And here's where it gets a bit murkier, isn't it? Succeeded in what? Did well for who? For God or myself? What does that look like? Is it a massive church with a huge music team? Or will a small church be okay? And why are numbers so important anyway? Our fellow clergy at CCA are great (coughs) at reminding us to constantly review our definition of success. According to the scriptures, the main tasks of a minister of the gospel is to preach the gospel of grace faithfully, to love and care for the people that God has entrusted to you, and to personally allow the Holy Spirit to grow you in holiness. Those are the, the three main tasks of a minister of the gospel. None of that has anything much to do with numbers. And yet we often struggle with what the Bishop Jay calls the sideways glance. Well, their church is going really well. Yeah, the sideways glance. And you might have a sideways glance for yourself. Well, that guy's car is better than mine. Oh, look at that guy's career. He's really successful. Look at that business. You know, we, we have the sideways tendency for a sideways glance. What about you? What are you building with your life and why are you building it? What is your definition of success? When you are gone from this life, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as someone who pointed to yourself or to someone or someone who pointed others to Jesus? These are really important questions for us to consider. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is that we know we're forgiven, we know that we're made perfect forever. So we can bring out our true motives, and well, our motives, our heart, and we can bring it out to the Lord and ask him to show us what's there. You see, the tragedy of King's, King Herod's life is that his crowning achievement was completely and utterly destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans besieged uh, Jerusalem. And they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people and sent 97,000 young men and women into slavery. Not just into slavery, but into the to be fed to the beasts in the arena, to be crucified and all sorts of things. And all that gold that adorned the temple was used to finance the building of the Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum is a massive place. It's a temple of a different sort, isn't it? It was all gone. All of his life's work completely and utterly destroyed. So Jesus' prophecy that not one stone here will be left on another came to pass. Because Josephus records that Herod's temple was so utterly erased that no visible remains of the original structure was left. And historians to this day are still unsure exactly where it was because it's completely gone. May God give us the grace to build something with our lives that can't be destroyed like Herod's temple was. So, so far we've covered that We all want to build something with our lives and that we want to do this because we want our lives to have meaning. And I think a really important question to ask in that light is what does the Lord want us to build 
in our lives? What does the Lord want? Because that's the ultimate motive. What's the, that's the ultimate question, right? <clears throat> so to answer this question from this passage, we need to look at the story behind the story. We've seen that Mark's gospel is full of symbolism and metaphors that point to Christ, his work, and what he accomplished. So what does the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem signify? What does it point to? What does it mean for us? I looked up um, when uh, Solomon built the first temple in the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 8. <coughs> and it records the prayer that he prayed, that Solomon prayed during the inauguration ceremony. And in that prayer, he expressed um, seven purposes that the temple had. Firstly, the presence of the Lord dwelt there. Secondly, the Ark of the Covenant containing the law of Moses was housed there. Thirdly, it was a place of prayer. Fourthly, it was a place of forgiveness. Fifth, justice. Sixth, a place of repentance. And seven, where foreigners are welcomed and can pray. So those are the, the, the seven purposes of the temple that, that I could pull out of, of Solomon's prayer. So contrast those purposes with what King Herod had in mind for his temple. Under his watch as king, the temple had shifted in its function, in its purpose. Instead of being a center for worship that was focused on repentance, forgiveness and justice and the restoration of relationship between God and his people, it now became a center for commercial, economical and political activity. He wanted to, uh, he, part of the reason why he built this temple in addition to glorifying himself was to please the Romans. In other words, the function of the temple had become corrupted. But I think there's something greater that, that the destruction of the temple signifies. And that is the whole system of offerings and sacrifices that occurred at the temple was coming to an end. We now know that all the sacrifices that the Lord had commanded in the Old Testament, they all pointed to Jesus. They, they, were, they were pointing to him. And they culminated in the sacrifice that he would offer of himself once and for all. And once Jesus had offered himself on the cross, the way of salvation by grace was made. And the way of salvation through obedience to the law of Moses, which was actually impossible anyway, <clears throat> was no longer required. There was only one man who had completely fulfilled the law and all of its demands, and that was Jesus. And in fact, Jesus identifies himself as the new temple. So if you turn to page 913 in your, in, in your Bibles, the church Bibles, page 913, John chapter 2, 18 to 21. Page 913, John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus is our new temple. For that reason we no longer have to go to a building to encounter the presence of God. We can come to him. We don't have to go to a building to pray. We can come to Jesus. 
We don't have to go to a building to receive forgiveness. We need to come to humbly come humbly to Jesus and ask him to forgive us once and for all. So as the new temple, Jesus is the way by which all foreigners can come to God through faith. You see how he fulfilled the, the function of the old um, um, te- the temple? So here's the thing. I think the complete and utter erasure of the second temple symbolically, metaphorically points to the erasure of trying to obtain salvation through obedience to the law because it is no longer required now that Jesus has offered himself as the one perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And not only is it no longer required, I think the fact that no stone was left on top of the other, it was completely gone. It's like it's offensive to God when we try to obtain salvation for our lives by what we do. Do you get that, that sense like God saying, away, <laughs> completely and utterly destroyed. I don't want to see any remains of that. Instead, God has made for us a new spiritual temple, which is none other than Jesus himself, <clears throat> through which we can enjoy fellowship with God. So let's bring this home now. <coughs> the wonderful thing about Jesus being our new temple is that we as individual people can be incorporated into it. If you turn with me to page 1007 in your Bibles, 1007. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Page 1007. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. (coughs) Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Isn't that epic? God's intention for our lives is that we become part of this new temple in which God lives by His Spirit. Us and all God's people from across all time and all nations. That's what God wants from our lives. That is His ultimate purpose for us. What a glorious building project that we can be a part of. It makes this look Really pathetic. It can't be destroyed by an invading, invading army. It can't be destroyed by fire. <clears throat> it will last forever and ever. <coughs> Doesn't it make all of our own building projects seem just a little small? Could our lives have any greater meaning than saying, Yes, Jesus, I want to be part of your glorious and eternal temple. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that in Jesus we have a new temple, one that is spiritual, 
one that any one of us can come to at any time of the day or night. One in which your presence dwells. One in which we can pray. We can repent. We can receive justice and mercy. And one in which all foreigners are welcome. Lord, we thank you for this glorious vision of what you are building. And Father, we want to be a part of it. We want our lives to count for that. We want to be a part of your building project, not our own. So Father, let this be our true motivation. Lord, in all the things that, that you've given us to enjoy and create, all of our personal building projects as it were, Lord, may we just enjoy them for what they are and not try to find meaning in them for our lives. But Lord, rather let us accept the meaning that you have placed upon us, that you invite us into. So Holy Spirit, would you purify our hearts, would you purify our motives today? And may our ultimate goal to bring you glory and honor and praise and to have you live in us that we can point others to your goodness and kindness and mercy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.